Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Leah James, a design entrepreneur turned author and speaker. Her book, The Get Real Method, Create the Life You Want and Do the Work That Matters is available now. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks, Douglas. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's been a while since we connected and I'm super excited to have this conversation So let's get started with just a little background on how you got your start. That's a great question. Well, I don't want to go way back, but I have spent about 20 years working in the UX field, UX problems of all sorts in all kinds of settings, startups, corporate environments, freelancing, agency, you name it. That was uh, really how I got my start and that work was really about focusing on how to make machines more human. So when we interact with them, it works for us. And essentially, I got exposed to a lot of human suffering in that process. I saw teams trying to innovate and bring ideas to the table and, you know, uh, designers uh, basically trying to work on their charter of like, figure out what's the next big thing. Right. And uh, during these projects and, and, and working with teams, uh, I really saw that the processes that we were using for innovation worked to some extent, but they really felt people. You know, uh, a lot of times we were able to create products and launch them into the market and help our customers. But in the process, we leave some bodies behind. And so that experience helped me uh, thought about, you know, when I moved to Austin, I started a design studio. And as part of that business, we said, well, let's figure this out. Let's try and see if we can help executives and leaders understand creativity a little bit more and how they can apply it to their businesses. So we started this, we launched and designed this whole, you know, training around design leadership, creative leadership, and all over the world we were teaching it. And that's when I really had a big aha moment about the work experience. I saw people reconnect with themselves in these trainings and workshops, like where, I mean, I I saw grown men cry at the end of the training. Mm. And I saw people tap into their creativity, imagination. In this training, we had people sort of use all their senses to create you know, and the understand methods of like how you connect with your customers, but also just like connect with people at a human level. 
And I would push people to tap into their own imagination and just let it go. Because it was a safe environment. You're not at work. We take you out of that space, right? And we said, just go, right? Because I know and my teams know at that time that creativity, you're born with creativity. And all we have to do is get you to experience it. So you know what your designers and your creative teams are actually going through when they have to stare at a blank piece of paper uh, and and do the work you're asking them to do, right? And the result of that experience was was me actually being present to these intimate moments of seeing people wake up to their own creativity and like their God-given power of imagination. And sometimes you see like corporate executives being shaken by that. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have these glimpses of people doing that. It's really fascinating, just this idea of professionalism and how people have been kind of conditioned to almost not be creative because, you know, we needed to act in a certain way and and behave and say certain things and dress a certain way. And I see so many people that are afraid to step out, you know, because that means they'll be recognized as, you know, being a little different. And, but as soon as they do it, it's so liberating. And so it's, it's, I've seen it a bunch and, you know, what you speak to is very powerful and it's so great to see other people doing this kind of work. What have you noticed to be kind of the triggers or the moves or prompts that are most effective you know, when you're getting pushback or someone's being a little bit resistant, what's helpful to get them to basically get up and dance? Well, sometimes it's just a little push or shift in your environment, right? Mm. Um, so uh, I was, you know, when we were developing this training, I was very adamant that we find places that are uh, natural, take people out of the conference room. So leaving an environment and, and just getting a new perspective can sometimes jolt people into like, oh, you know, like, for example, in the, in Silicon Valley, we would have this setting where there's fruit trees everywhere. And it's, it's not a conference room. It's like a house, you know? Mm. And so, in fact, you know, the last design studio that I ran, we, we would often find spaces um, where to have our studios where it doesn't look like a corporate environment. And we bring in a lot of nature because... For people to feel safe, I think safe is a really big deal when it comes to creativity, right? So we want to craft places of belonging and places where people feel like, oh, this is like a home, right? And and you can do that inside a corporate environment too, right? We're seeing a lot of corporations starting to design like where they would dedicate creativity spaces to do the work right? Where it's not cubicles and it's not necessarily conference rooms. You know, like IBM is a really good example of that. When they established their design studio here in Austin, they did, they, they put a lot of intention into how the space makes somebody feel, mm. right? So I think space is one thing. And then the energy is the other thing. So one of the things that I always do in these trainings is I would incorporate things that may not seem like relevant. So we for breaks, right? For breaks between exercises or between modules where we're teaching people new ideas, we might meditate for five minutes. 
So I do a lot of things that people don't normally do or expect to, to do in a training setting or in a corporate environment. And we would often hear people say, we want to bottle up the energy in this training and bring it back to work. So really paying a lot of attention to the, the experience side of it and not just the content, I think is, is a big trick in thinking about that. I think you're dead on with all of that. The space, the context matters so much. And also this notion of the experience, you know, mm -hmm. like, and this comes back to some advice that we give around meetings and, and how people, you know, the classic advice is always make sure you have an agenda. Well, an agenda typically is a list of topics. It's very content centered where if we take a moment to step back and look and say, what's the experience? You know, how do we want to start? How do we want to end? What kind of journey do we want to take people on? I think that's such good advice. I want to come back to the space piece from a kind of from a learning science and a retention and integration standpoint. You know, I've always struggled with there's a risk of when we take someone out of their environment and they go learn some new thing. Now they have to bridge that gap between that place where they discovered these things and try to apply them in the the day to day, right? And so, what are yeah. what are some of your go to approaches for helping people bridge that gap? Because I agree with you, it is helpful to not have the distractions of the office and and to give people the courage to actually kind of jump yeah. into this new way of being. But once they're now they've they felt that feeling, how do we help them translate that back into the the day to day? Well, what's interesting is that you know we create an opening, right, and then people get curious. Right. So one of the things that we were really intentional in doing, and I still do that um, to this day. First of all, I want to circle back to, to something you said, which is I, I don't think about meetings as its own like separate thing, because if you think about it, we're spending all of our time in meetings. <laughs> so that's essentially synonymous to work. Right now, what what's awesome about what you guys are doing and I think facilitators in general is that now it's um, becoming accepted that somebody can take the role of designing the ex that experience for people so that we can go from like elevate these like okay or maybe not even okay meetings to like amazing experiences and to me that doing that is actually about elevating the human experience because it's purely just because of how much time we're spending in meetings, in our lives in general. So I want to say that. And then the second thing is it doesn't take that much. That's the great thing about shifting environments. So we shift the environment, we take people out of their work, right? So that they can open up. But once they open up, that opening stays there, right? And so, for example, in a lot of the trainings and facilitation I do, I assemble kits. And in those kits, are really simple things like Play-Doh, pipe cleaners, post-its, glue, sticks, <laughs> you know, things that you'd find around your house that your kids are playing with all the time. So it's very accessible, right? So once people have the experience outside and they're willing to use these things to create, to model, to look at the world with a new perspective, right? And they realize, oh my God, the power is not the things. The power is my willingness and my openness to interact with these things and give it my imagination, right? Then 
what they can do is, you know, at the end of the training, we always say it's really simple. You don't even have to have dedicated space. You know, put some big foam board up. Suddenly, you have creative space. Buy eight pieces of foam core. Put it up around your office, wherever, outside of your cubicle. Put stuff up, right? Here's a box. We actually let people take it home. We, we usually give them a bag at the end and we're like, put all this stuff in there because, you know, we want you to have, and I, I actually created diagrams of like what the things are, what are they good for and where, where they can, you know, go and buy them pretty much at Michael's or any store, Target, you know. So we make it really accessible, right? So it's not saying you have to invest tens and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in order to have innovation and creativity. All you have to do is have the willingness but that connection to the self is super important, I think, in order for that opening to be to be there. You know, it also makes me think of like you mentioned creating this opening and creating this curiosity, and it made me think about how that negativity is addictive, right? If someone starts getting negative, all of a sudden you start seeing the negativity brewing because you know people love to commiserate. Curiosity is also addictive. You know, if we start all actively practicing curiosity, like everyone starts to kind of do it, right? And so as leaders, if we kind of shape the direction of kind of where we want our organizations to grow, it has a way of kind of infecting things in a good way, right? The curiosity can go viral. And likewise, when you were talking about just all you had to do is put up some foam core, et cetera, it made me think about this notion of exhaust. Like activities have exhaust, they require supplies, they create artifacts. And that is a reminder of what we've been doing. And also if the supplies are laying around, then it's like really easy to like go back into those activities, right? Like we've got it, it's at our fingertips, right? It's not in a closet somewhere. So just bringing those things out and honoring the fact that this is what we want to do, this is how we want to spend our time and making it easy to be curious and, and explore. I think that is so much more powerful than worrying about like, do we have the best view and is it all glass and all these kinds of things, right? Like, is it just comfortable to you to think and do people have stuff available to them? Yeah, and I think a lot of, um, you know, in the in the old days, I think it's more accepted now, you know, to, to play, like play playing at work. Serious play is a bit, a bit more, I think, accepted, you know, in the corporate environment, but, we, we also have this just like limiting belief about work that it has to be serious, like quote unquote, right? But on the other hand, we're demanding of like every department at the company should be innovating. And unfortunately, if we're not tapped in to our, our ability to like have ideas and come up with new ways of thinking, if we're not tapped into that, we really can be innovative, right? You know, that, that strikes a big core with me, Leah. The, what's the classic place where everyone thinks of ideas? It's the shower, right? That's, that, yes. that's the classic yes. example, right? I came up <laughs> with, with it when I was in Why is that, right? Well, it's because I took a moment away from everything else and the idea came to me. Right. And so where does innovation and ideas come from? It comes from free space. Yes. Like when yes. you create space, innovation rushes in. Yet companies are so fearful of their need to change and move fast that they just literally cram their schedules full of activities. 
and they don't leave that room for innovation to creep in. And what you say resonates with me deeply because it's like, if we don't allow ourselves that ability and that space, then we're just kind of just stamping stuff and just on repetition. It brings me back to something you mentioned in the pre-show chat, which is this kind of conundrum around when we're faced with this idea of serious play or or kind of just like letting loose a little bit of this kind of preconceived notion of, of what is work, you know, people are confronted with this question of, is this professional? And, and how can people move past that moment of maybe anxiety and actually bring their best self to work? I mean, you, you, you told me that that is the only way that people can be truly courageous. Yeah, so we, you know, we were talking earlier about this pyramid that I'm that I'm developing with belonging on the bottom, creativity, courage, and innovation. Innovation ultimately at the very top, right? Like if there was a hierarchy of company culture, and on the other side you get innovation, like the company's, you know, self actualization, right? I think that belonging's on the bottom, and you have to have creativity and courage in the middle, and the reason for that is that feature parity is such a, a common thing still, right? The competitors doing that, so we have to do that. We have to do more than that, right? But we all know, though, that deep inside, that's not how innovation happens, and that's not how, how you beat the competition, okay? And it does sound counterintuitive to go back to belonging. Like, how does that even belong in the conversation, of, of innovation, right? And the more I'm studying this, the more I'm realizing that the experience of work has to allow for the whole person to come to it. And because why? Because creativity, the root of innovation has to do with lots of ideas. Where do lots of ideas come from? Diversity. Hmm. And if people can't bring them their whole selves to work, you have uniformity. Uniformity, it is the opposite of diversity. So as facilitators and, and designers and leaders of all kinds, the, the our mission then is really to say, how do we create an inclusive culture where people feel comfortable bringing themselves to work, their whole selves, all of their perspectives, all of their background and knowledge and lived experience? Because without that, you're not going to get unique perspectives. And guess what? The world, the people you're selling to are made up of people with all of these unique experiences, shared experiences, as well as unique experiences, right? It's, it's a very intersectional world out there. And if we're not tapping into these perspectives, innovation is not really possible because we're just recycling the same ideas over and over again. And sure, there's a place for remixing, right? But there's... Definitely, you and I both know, because we've been in this space for so long, there's definitely limits to that, right? So I think right now, there's just like really amazing opening right now where people are asking, corporations, organizations of all kinds are asking, like, how can we be more inclusive? And what I would say is start with allowing people to bring their whole selves to work and be creatively courageous, Right. Yeah, you know, the thing that really jumps to me is there's a quote that I've lived by for years now, which is, if we're all thinking the same, nobody's thinking. Yeah, yeah. 
a fishbowl effect. And it's not condemning anybody. It's actually condemning the system, if anything, right? Because if we've created a culture or a system where people don't feel safe, you know, the psychological safety is just so abysmal that they can't bring their whole self and they're not able to to even let those thoughts surface because, mm-hmm. you know, they've got barriers in place, like protective barriers. They've had to set boundaries, <laughs> you know, just so that they, they can even show up. And that's very dysfunctional. And we may be doing just fine as a company, but we might be missing out on like excellence. Yes. Right. And that's that's where it's sometimes hard for people to to really understand or factor these things in. But any leader will tell you their number one expense is payroll. And you hire and spend so much time recruiting these amazing people. Why would you want them functioning at 50 percent, 60, 70, even 80 percent when we could be functioning at 80 percent? And it's not that hard to do. It's just to your point about making people feel safe including them, making sure they're seen, heard, and respected. (laughs) And next thing you know, the things start flourishing. And if someone's not flourishing in that that environment, that's a really healthy thing. It becomes very clear and we can understand, hey, you're going to flourish somewhere else. Like the, the, the values are mismatch here and our work to create more belonging has made that more apparent. Let's find a place that you'll be better fit for and then we can likewise find someone that's going to thrive in this environment. And so, you know, belonging is not about, in my mind, not about just like kind of changing the company to suit everybody, but it's about making sure that we create space for everyone to thrive that aligns with the values. So anyway, I, I get really passionate about this and I love that your work is focused on it now. I want to come back to, I started thinking a bit during this conversation about maybe the, um, how courage and curiosity kind of work together in in an interesting way. And I hadn't thought about this much before, but during this conversation, it's been coming up a bunch for me. And because the curiosity that opened that door for folks and the example you gave, gave them the courage to change their thinking and change their behaviors. And so I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on this kind of connection between curiosity and courage. Curiosity and courage are like, they go hand in hand. So I'm, I'm so glad you made that connection. Actually, there was a book, I think it came out in the 80s called Tribal Leadership. Have you come mm. across that book? And it was a really cool study that they did with like 12,000 people in all different corporate environments. And they were looking at groups of people and how they form effective uh, tribes at work. Okay. Uh, and in that finding, you know, they put tribes in different levels, right? And what they found is this level five, which not even Apple as a company can stay in, in that space. But one of the key indicators of top performing teams from the study is that they have this really interesting thing where everybody in the company have access to what they call innocent wonderment. And what that means, you know, David Kelly talks about it, you know, the, the IDEO founder, about sort of this childlike, innocent, creative, like, opening to thinking about ideas. And it's connected to our ability to not always be thinking about who are we competing with, but what is our ultimate kind of purpose and goal for existing, 
right? So we all know that, you know, the why is really important, right, at work. But I think people have a really hard time tapping into that, that like, how do I connect my work with the why? How do I be productive, right? And what's really cool about this skill set, I think it's a skill set, innocent wonderment, is to be able to have the space to say, what if, what if this happened? What if I were to combine this and that? And to say, you know what? I don't have, I don't have data to support that. Mm. But my company says it's okay for me to tap into my courage and try things anyway. You know, because as you and I both know, like, like innovation isn't like when you come up with ideas that actually work in the market, right? And in a way that like blows everybody's mind, the path there is never bulletproof data, right? Mm-hmm. It's courage. It's 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 a it's you you wrote a book on remix, right? So it's our ability to put ideas that normally don't go together together. So and try it, and then you create data along the way. So in order for us to have real creative courage that possibility that that safety to be able to do this to be to sometimes tap into that creative wonderment or that innocent wonderment is really important you know this concept of innocent wonderment so beautiful and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier around space and a slack time because you i don't think you can find that innocent wonderment if your cortisol levels are just totally jacked up and you're just high anxiety and running from task to task, it's just like that space for innovation, right? We can't find that moment unless we kind of nurture it, right? And give space for it to emerge. And likewise, there's an element of courage that comes from, I would say, endorsement mm-hmm. or, you know, when authority gives permission, so to speak. And that might sound a bit too controlling, but it can be kind of almost inherent permission or just like, the culture is set up to where everyone feels like they have permission that gives you courage, right? Versus feeling like you have to get things approved or, you know, everything gets shut down. And then it also reminds me of a topic that's very prevalent in the innovation space, which is like creating a learning culture, Mm. right? Like, or some people will talk about like fast to fail or like safe to fail. But to me, it's really about learning versus failure. But still the the point is, like, if we develop a culture where we're really focused on learning and we get excited about what we learn, that creates courage because then we don't have any fear about repercussions or, or failing. And, you know, I want to go back to one more point that, that you were trying to get at before, too, is this idea of how do we give people space? How do we give people permission? And sometimes it's it's really from a leadership perspective and a facilitator perspective, because I, I don't see the difference between the two, is sometimes it's like a, a one minute thing, right? So about five years ago, I shifted my practice to to primarily work with mission-based companies. And one of the first, one that, first ones that I worked with really changed my perspective because I was really struggling with this idea of like, well, how do you be professional and do all these things I know works? You know, and we're all really secretive about it. We don't talk about it at work, but we do it at home, right? We, we, like you said, you know, we, we do yoga or we meditate or we journal. We do all these things that we know helps us tap into our creativity and our thinking, right? But we don't do it at work because we don't think it's, there's a place for it. But I was working with this company and they happen to be 
in the space of meditation. And so oftentimes I would be part of really important meetings, you know, because we were consulting on, on some strategic work. And they often would open an important meeting with a meditation. It's not hierarchical. Like anybody who feel called to do it would lead it. And sometimes it's, it's about intention setting, you know, with the meditation. And it really puts you in this place of like, oh, yeah, this is what we're here to do. This is our intention. And sometimes, for example, if there's like major world events going on or like during this time with pandemic and races and all this stuff going, sometimes we would do wellness scans at a check-in. Mm. We just go around and say, okay, how are we feeling at a physical, emotional, mental spiritual level and people can just go around and check in on that 30 seconds a minute per person right and what i noticed was and and since then i've worked with a lot of companies that have different cultures like this not all the same and not all the same methodologies but it's a reflection of what the, the group wants at work and what i noticed is that it does not take away from the productivity and the professionalism. In fact, it's key to it. And it's addictive, like you said. Like, I look forward to seeing these groups of people. Instead of like, you know, sometimes I've had experiences with client work where you just dread it. Like, oh, Wednesday there's a meeting and I'm dreading it, you know? So I want to move into a bit of a closer. And, you know, we haven't had much opportunity to talk about the Get Real Method, and the book is out now, and I'd love just to hear a little bit about what's it all about, and you know, what should our listeners know? Is there any tidbit that you might think that uh, they'll find especially helpful? What's it all about? Yeah, so the Get Real Method. So on my journey of figuring out this innovation thing and how belonging plays into it, what I realized is that, you know, right now we have this great turn and great opening where organizations are saying, we want people to feel a sense of belonging. McKinsey's telling us this is good and there's data to support it. Well, people, if people aren't used to that, it will be really hard for them to bring them, uh, their full selves to work. And so this book was actually the beginning of this, this pyramid. So I wanted to arm people with the techniques and tools that we designers actually know very well. So the book is actually really about arming people with the skill sets to find their whole selves, what it means for them individually to be fulfilled, to do meaningful work. Who are you? I have a, a, a three-step method in, in, in there that talks about how, you, how do you sense where you are, how to attune, you know, use attunement to understand where you want to go next, and manifesting your visions. Mm. And this is actually all the same methodologies we use in design thinking. And so the book is really how to be your own design strategist in life and be powerful at work, right? How to stand for something. Um, and also uh, at the end of the day, what, what it's really about is to be able to show up with your full self wherever you are, whether at home, at work, at play, right? So the Get Real Method is really about the first step in that, you know, creative courage, innovation journey. And I'm hoping that, you know, for your audience, I think when I say the word design strategist, they'll get it. 
you know, and there's a little sprinkle of ancient wisdom in there too. So it should be really fun and it's filled with workshops and step-by-step how-tos. So I'm not leaving you with just ideas and concepts, but it's very practical. Yeah, so good. I love this idea of, you know, an environment scan and then kind of just checking in and attuning and going, well, what's really going on here? And then also kind of this like future casting. Well, if I want this bad enough, what does it really mean to manifest it? And it's important work if we really want to shape our future versus just sitting around and waiting for it just to happen to us. Yeah, there's no reason to wait. No doubt. Leah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for for being on today. I want to just give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Well, creative courage means doing what it takes to make a vision real, even if you don't have all the answers. So I would encourage everyone to not wait for the answers. Don't do a whole lot of planning and go for it, whatever it is you're searching for and whatever you're trying to make happen. And how can they find the book and maybe connect with you or learn more about the work that you continue to do? Definitely. I am on LinkedIn. That's my only social media platform. So Leah James, look me up. I think I'm the only Leah James. And then uh, leahjames.com is where I would I share all of my latest thinking. And the book is available on Amazon now. So definitely go get it. Yeah, definitely check out the Get Real Method. And Leah, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com